Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 1st edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folsner, attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal denied the request made by Lyft drivers for an injunction classifying them as employees of the company as required by AB5. In this case, John Rogers filed a putative class action alleging that Lyft misclassified its drivers as independent contractors rather than as employees. The complaint asserted a single claim for failure to provide sick pay paid leave under Labor Code Section 246. The drivers then made an ex parte application for an emergency preliminary injunction seeking to enjoin Lyft from classifying its drivers as independent contractors. In response, Lyft had the case removed from the state to the federal court system and filed a motion to compel arbitration of his claims. The federal court said it lacked jurisdiction to order injunctive relief and remanded the case back to the Superior Court to resolve whether the claim actually sought a private injunction, which would be subject to arbitration, or a public injunction, which would be exempt from arbitration. On remand, the Superior Court granted Lyft's motion to compel arbitration and denied the request for an injunction, and the drivers appealed both of these rulings. The California Court of Appeal dismissed the appeal of both issues in the unpublished case of Rogers v. Lyft. While this appeal was pending, voters passed California Proposition 22, exempting Lyft and other rideshare companies from Assembly Bill 5, and Proposition took effect on December 16, 2020. Proposition 22 was then declared unconstitutional by a different trial judge last year, but an appeal of that order is currently pending in another appellate court. In denying the appeal, the court cited the Code of Civil Procedure, which provides an aggrieved party may appeal from an order dismissing or denying a petition to compel arbitration. Here, the Superior Court granted Lyft's petition to compel arbitration, which is not mentioned in the statute. Alternatively, the plaintiff argued that this appeal should be heard because it presents an important question of state law. But the Court of Appeal agreed with Lyft that the appeal from the denial of the emergency preliminary injunction is now moot after passage of Prop 22, and it should be dismissed. An attorney for the Lyft driver said they are disappointed in the decision and are considering their options, including petitioning the California Supreme Court for review. And in another case, the Court of Appeal ruled that the settlement of an individual suit by an employee against her employer does not bar employees' ability to file a new Private Attorney General Act suit against the same employer for the same conduct. In this case, Christina Howitson worked for Evans Hotels and the Lodge at Torrey Pines Partnership as a room service server for about a month. After her brief employment, she served the California Labor and Workforce Development Agency with notice of her intention to file a Private Attorney General Act, that's PAGA, action against Avens Hotels for violations of the Labor Code. 
And she also filed a class action lawsuit that did not include any PAGA claims as an individual against her employer asserting 10 causes of action based on violations of the labor code and unfair competition laws. Evans Hotel served Howitson with an arbitration demand and an offer to compromise her case for $1,500 plus attorney fees pursuant to CCP 998, and Howitson accepted the 998 offer. The 998 offer in part provided that judgment is to be entered in favor of plaintiff in her individual capacity. So the trial court entered judgment for Howitson also in her individual capacity. That ends up maybe a big mistake because after 10 days after accepting the 998 offer, Howitson then filed a PAGA action against Evans Hotels based on the same facts as the first lawsuit. Evans Hotel demurred, alleging the second lawsuit was barred as a result of the judgment in the first one. The trial court agreed and sustained the demur without leave to amend, but the Court of Appeal reversed in the published case of Howitson versus Evanson's Hotels. This case involves the legal issue of whether an employee who settles individual claims against the employer is subsequently barred by claim preclusion doctrine, from bringing a PAGA enforcement action against the employer for the same labor code violations. The doctrine of claim preclusion applies to matters which were based or could have been raised on matters litigated or litigable under the prior, in the prior action. The second lawsuit must involve the same cause of action as the first lawsuit. Secondly, there must have been a final judgment on the merits in the prior litigation. And finally, the parties in the second lawsuit must be the same or in privity with the parties to the first lawsuit. Here, the Court of Appeal concluded that these requirements were not met. The harm suffered by Howitson in the first lawsuit is not the same harm as that suffered by the state of California, who is the plaintiff in the second lawsuit. The first case requested damages to compensate the plaintiffs, and the PAGA action requested civil penalties intended to punish the wrongdoer and to deter future misconduct. The state of California was the plaintiff in the second action and was neither a party in the prior first action nor in privity with the employee. Thus, the Court of Appeal concluded that the requirements for the doctrine of claims preclusion were not met in this case. In California, an Industrial Welfare Commission wage order requires an employer to provide an employee with a suitable seat while working if the nature of the work reasonably permits the use of a seat. The plaintiff in this case, Monica Maida, worked as a sales associate for about six months at an AutoZone auto parts store operated by AutoZoners. She assisted customers at the parts counter by answering questions and locating parts, operated the cash register, cleaned the store, moved merchandise around the store, and stocked shelves. After she resigned from her position, she filed a lawsuit asserting one claim under the Labor Code Private Attorney General, uh, General Act uh, provisions 
alleging that AutoZoners failed to provide her with a suitable seating when she worked at the cashier and parts counter workstations as required by this wage order. AutoZoners moved for summary judgment, arguing that it satisfied the seating requirement by making two chairs available to its associates. However, the chairs were not placed at the cashier or parts counter workstations, but they were in or just outside the manager's office. In opposition to the summary judgment motion, Mita contended that AutoZoners did not provide seating as required, but no one told her because no one told her the chairs were available for use at the front counter workstations and she was only given the option to use the chair as an accommodation after an on-the-job injury. The trial court agreed with AutoZoners and granted the motion, but the Court of Appeal reversed in the published case of Meta versus AutoZoners. No published California authority has considered what steps should be taken by an employer to, quote, provide suitable seating within the meaning of the wage order seating requirement. The Court of Appeal concluded in this case of first impression that where an employer has not expressly advised its employees that they may use a seat during their work and has not provided a seat at a workstation, the inquiry as to whether an employer has provided suitable seating may be fact-intensive and may involve a multitude of job and workplace-specific factors. Accordingly, the resolution at the trial court level of this issue at a summary judgment stage in this case was inappropriate. The undisputed facts create a triable issue of material fact as to whether AutoZoners, quote, provided suitable seating, end quote, to its customer service employees at the front of the store by placing seats at other workstations in a separate area of the store. The trial court therefore erroneously granted the motion for summary judgment. And in yet another employment law case, Wood Ranch USA hired Sonny Gallo to work as a server for its chain of restaurants. She was required to sign an arbitration agreement and to agree to the terms of the employee handbook. Her employment was terminated, so she sued Wood Ranch for compensatory and punitive damages on nine different causes of action based upon alleged discrimination and harassment on the basis of gender and religion. Wood Ranch moved to compel arbitration, which was granted. Both parties were then asked to pay necessary and the, the necessary required arbitration fees, which the plaintiff Gallo paid, but the due date came and went without any payment from Wood Ranch. Even after the due date was extended and the employer was given a warning that the arbitration would closed, be closed if not paid by the extended date. Wood Ranch eventually paid the $1,900 fee two days late, so the employee filed a motion to vacate the trial court's order compelling arbitration, which was granted. Wood Ranch appealed, but the Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court in the published case of Gallo v. Wood Ranch USA Incorporated. In 1961, the California legislature enacted the California Arbitration Act, 
as a way to protect the right of private parties to resolve their disputes through the efficient, streamlined procedures of arbitration. And in 2019, the California legislature added Code of Civil Procedure sections that obligated a company to pay its share of arbitration fees by no later than 30 days after the, due, the date they are due, and that the failure to do so constitutes a material breach of the arbitration agreement that gives the employee the right to withdraw from arbitration and resume the litigation in a judicial forum. This additional requirement was to avoid employees from being placed in what they called procedural limbo by entities who subsequently refused to pay the necessary fees to allow the arbitrations to move forward. This appeal presented a question of first impression. Are these provisions preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act and thus inapplicable to this case with Wood Ranch? But the Court of Appeal held that they are not because the procedures they prescribe further rather than frustrate the objectives of the Federal Arbitration Act to honor the party's intent to arbitrate and to preserve arbitration as a speedy and effective alternative forum for resolving disputes. Teva Pharmaceutical Industries, an Israel-based drug manufacturer, makes Actique and Fentora, which are branded fentanyl products for cancer pain, and a number of generic opioids, including oxycodone. The drug maker has reached an agreement in principle with the Working Group of States Attorneys General, Council for Native American Tribes, and plaintiffs' lawyers representing the states and subdivisions on the financial terms of a nationwide opioid settlement. The agreement would provide up to $4.25 billion to participating states, tribes, and local governments to help address their opioid crisis. The states allege that TIFA deceptively marketed opioids by downplaying the risk of addiction and overstating their benefits, including encouraging the myth that signs of addiction are actually pseudo-addiction treated by prescribing more opioids and failed to comply with suspicious order monitoring requirements. States, localities, and tribes must ratify the proposed settlement, and a final settlement remains contingent on agreement on critical business practice changes and transparency requirements. The agreement is also contingent upon reaching the thresholds for participation that will be set forth in the final document. There are no remaining trials currently scheduled against TIFA in 2022, with the possible exception of the relief phase of a trial in the New York opioids litigation. And now our crime report. Linda Kepetian, who lives in El Dorado Hills, was sentenced to 18 months in prison for one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud and one count of conspiracy to pay and receive health care kickbacks. Kepreptian and her husband, Akop Atoyan, owned and controlled home health care and hospice agencies in the greater Sacramento area. The couple paid kickbacks to multiple individuals for beneficiary referrals, including employees of health care facilities and their spouses. In total, the two submitted over 8,000 claims to Medicare for the cost of home health care and hospice services. However, since the agencies obtained the beneficiary referrals by paying kickbacks, 
The agency should not have received any Medicare reimbursement. In separate cases, several of the co-conspirators who received the kickbacks pleaded guilty for their roles in the kickback scheme. As part of his guilty plea, her husband, Akop Atoyan, agreed to pay in excess of $2.5 million in restitution to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and agreed to forfeit that same amount to the United States. And in regulatory news, the Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau has released its quarterly experience report, an update on California's statewide insurance experience as of the end of March 2022. According to the report, written premium for 2021 was 1.4% below that for 2020 and is lowest since 2012. Premium declined sharply beginning in the second quarter of 2020 due to the economic downturn resulting from the pandemic. The modest decrease was driven by continued insurer rate decreases offsetting growth in employer payroll. However, written premium for the first quarter of 2022 is 22% above that for the first quarter of 2021 and 5% above that for the first year of 2020, which was pre-pandemic. The average charge rate for the first quarter of 2022 is 3% below that of 2021 and is the lowest in decades. The projected loss ratio for 2021, including COVID-19 claims, is 5 points above that for 2020 and 11 points that above that for 2019, and projected loss ratios have been growing steadily since 2016. The projected combined ratio for 2021, including COVID-19 claims, is 7 points higher than in 2020 and 33 points higher than the low point in 2016. Excluding COVID-19 claims, the projected combined ratio for 2021 is 110%, and the projected ratio for 2020 is 99%, which are higher than recent years. Combined ratios have been growing in California due to insurer rate decreases and modest growth in average claim severities. Cumulative trauma claim rates increased through 2016 to be 80% above the 2005 level, and CT claim rates were relatively consistent from 2016 through 2019. Preliminary data shows a sharp increase in CT claim rates in 2020, likely driven by shifts in claim patterns during the pandemic period. In particular, the 2020 increase in CT claim rates is largest in industry sectors that had the largest job losses in 2020. But there was some good news. Indemnity claims have been settling faster through the first quarter of 2020, primarily driven by the reforms of SB 863 and SB 1160. Average claim closing rates plateaued in 2021 and 2022, but remain lower than the immediately pre-pandemic period. Projected total claim severity for 2021, including COVID-19 claims, is 1% below 2020, but 12% above 2017. The full WCIRB quarterly experience report can be downloaded from the research section of the WCIRB website.
And there is troubling news for private self-insured employers. According to a California Workers' Compensation Institute review of initial data from the State Office of Self-Insurance Plans, that's OSIP, workers' compensation claim frequency among California's private self-insured employers hit the highest level since 2007 last year. OSIP's July annual summary of private self-insured data is the first snapshot of California private self-insured claims experience for cases reported in 2021. The latest summary reflects the experience of private self-insured employers who covered 2.39 million California employees last year and who reported more than 93,000 claims in 2021 which is 8% more than the claims noted in the 2019 initial report. The breakdown by claim type shows private self-insured employers reported nearly 49,000 medical-only claims in 2021, up 11.4% from 2020, and indemnity claim volume increased in both of the last two years. The latest claim count translates to an overall combined frequency rate of both medical and indemnity claims reaching the highest level in the last 15 years. The increase in claim volume and claim frequency helped drive up first report total paid and incurred losses. Total incurred losses, which is paid benefits plus reserves for future payments, rose 113.1%, excuse me, rose 13.1% from the comparable 2020 figure. Aside from the higher claim volume increased in the average paid and incurred losses at the first report also contributed to the growth in total paid and incurred losses as both hit all-time highs in 2021. CWCI members and subscribers may log into the communications section of the CWCI website to view a summary bulletin with more details, analyses, and graphics. The California legislature is contemplating reductions in the 90-day time limit for claims administrators to investigate and determine compensability on new claims. But, according to a new analysis by the California Workers' Compensation Institute, proposals to cut the amount of time to investigate work-related injuries and determine employer liability may be easier said than done, given existing statutory and regulatory timeframes for the various steps within the process, many of which claims organizations do not control. The length of a workers' comp investigation varies depending upon the type of injury reported, circumstances surrounding the injurious event, witness availability, the cooperation and availability of the parties involved, the number of issues, medical conditions asserted, and the availability of documentation. The CWCI study notes that reducing compensability determination timeframes would make it hard to fully investigate claims, especially those are litigated or denied. SB 1127, which is currently under consideration by the California legislature, would reduce the investigation period for claims where workers are given a presumption of compensability to 75 days from the employer notification of injury, while the investigation period for other claims would remain at 90 days. 
The CWCI analysis examined the underlying issues associated with this and other recent proposals to reduce claims investigation timeframes using data from nearly 460,000 non-COVID-19 claims and 17,000 COVID-19 claims to assess the the impact of these proposals. According to its analysis, accepted claims without litigation are the most frequent, least complex claims in the system. In 98% of these claims, compensability is determined within 90 days, while in slightly more than 96% of these claims, the decision is made within 60 to 30 days. When non-litigated and litigated non-COVID claims are combined, more than 90% have a decision within 75 days. But investigation periods are longer for litigated and denied claims and require significantly more time to gather reports and documentation from outside sources. For example, at 75 days, only about 49% of litigated claims that are eventually denied have a compensability decision strongly suggesting that under current rules and regulations, 75 days is an insufficient amount of time for claims administrators to obtain the medical and factual evidence required to make a compensability determination. And under current law, employers are already liable for up to $10,000 of medical treatment for a claimed injury during the investigation period, regardless of the ultimate compensability decision. So, Reducing that time frame would also reduce the amount of time that workers whose claims are eventually denied could receive that $10,000 worth of medical care. Determining compensability is particularly challenging and time-consuming for COVID-19 claims, especially those that are litigated. The study's findings show that reducing investigation timelines as proposed in prior and current legislation would create compensability determination thresholds that are unnecessary for accepted claims and unrealistic for litigated and denied claims. CWCI has released its analysis of the impact of reducing compensability determinations in an impact analysis report that is available for free to the public on its website. And in other industry news, the Hanover Insurance Group announced the launch of its Hanover Ion Sensor Programs, which offers a robust set of technology-based services to help businesses and organization owners prevent workplace injuries, property damage, theft, and other losses. Part of the program focuses on workplace ergonomics, aimed at preventing workplace injuries and reducing exposure to workers' comp claims. The program's wearable sensors can help assess the risks of manual handling injuries to businesses and identify solutions using sensor technology and data insights. Manual handling injuries are a major cause of injury in the workplace, sidelining workers and production and resulting in workers' compensation claims. And Hanover says that many of those injuries are preventable with this technology. As part of the Hanover Ion Workplace Ergonomics Program, Hanover has partnered with Dorsa V to help evaluate the risks of those injuries and find solutions using sensor technology and data insights with their V-Safe program. The program takes advantage of state-of-the-art technology 
to help evaluate material handling situations to be sure they are not an injury waiting to happen and correct the situation if they are. V-SAFE uses medical-grade wearable movement and muscle activity sensors, software, and sophisticated algorithms to provide objective and actionable data that profiles the movement risk of jobs and the tasks within those jobs. Wearable sensors are placed on low back and shoulders and evaluate specific material handling tasks and send the data to the My VSafe program accessible on an iPhone or iPad. The program evaluates whether the employee is at risk of injury and recommends safer techniques to perform the task. Data gathered and shared with employees at risk helps employers engage with staff on safe work practices, a firm step toward cooperation and improvement. Information gathered can also be used to evaluate tasks for return-to-work programs. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.